Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cracking Addiction with Philippe and Naren and Fergal Armstrong. On the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we're going to be talking about MDMA, or 3,4-methylene-dioxy-methamphetamine, also commonly known as ecstasy or molly. Now, MDMA is a sympathomimetic amphetamine that causes a release of endogenous catecholamines, such as noradrenaline and dopamine, and that's how it takes its effects in the human body. It's had a wide range of both medical and recreational um, uses. Uh, in medicine, it has been used as an appetite suppressant in the early 1900s, and then from the 1970s and more recently, it's been used for its psychedelic effects and for its treatment of some conditions, in particular treatment-resistant PTSD. Now, MDMA is a pretty complicated uh, drug, and it's also got some analogues such as paramethoxyamphetamine, or PMA, as well as paramethoxymethamphetamine, PMMA. So Fergal, could you take us through some of the uh, pharmacokinetics of MDMA, PMA, and PMMA? Sure. So I think it's important to understand that MDMA is merely the, the best known of the family of of uh, these substances. So, um, in particular, if we look at PMA and PMMA, so they both are potent serotonin and noradrenaline reuptake inhibitors. So they both increase the synaptic concentration of these monoamines. They're also potent releasers of these uh, monoamines. And gram for gram, they're more lethal than ecstasy. They cause more hyperthermia and they cause more serotonin syndrome. So, Given the hyperthermia and the serotonin syndrome, it's not, it's not surprising that they're also more lethal. If we look specifically at PMA, we can see that compared to ecstasy, it's got a delayed onset of action. So therefore, that actually increases the risk of fatal overdose because you take the pill and you think nothing's happened. Therefore, you think you haven't taken enough. So therefore, you take some more. So you end up with a staggered overdose effect. And it also causes a, a large hypertensive effect, potentially a hypertensive crisis. So it can cause rises in blood pressure up to 60 milligrams of, uh, sorry, up to 60 milliliters of, millimeters of mercury, just very quickly like that. If you look at PMMA, again, you know, it, it does cause tachycardia. It causes myokimia, which is that spasmodic eyelid contracting and uh, like that. And uh, it also causes compulsive yawning, and it tends to actually be devoid of any enjoyable uh, subjective effects. So, really, it's it should be regarded as a pollutant because you know you're 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 not getting any bang for your buck with PMMA. Overall, however, I think if you can forget if you forget everything else, the difference between ecstasy and PMA and PMMA is you're at more risk of getting serotonin toxicity. Can you explain what serotonin toxicity is then, Philippe? Sure. So serotonin toxicity is, as the name kind of implies, uh, an elevated level of serotonin in, 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 in the body's system. And the thing that we worry about is serotonin syndrome. And serotonin syndrome in, in this situation is uh, when the effects of uh, MDMA, PMA or PMMA cause elevated levels of serotonin or it interacts with any 
some of the other drugs um, that a patient may have taken and causes elevated levels of, of serotonin. And this can be dangerous because it can cause um, muscle spasm, elevated blood pressure, and it can cause a whole constellation of, of other symptoms such as rhabdomyolysis as, as well as hypothermia. And it can be, in serious cases, serotonin can be a life-threatening um, condition. So that's why we're so mindful of serotonin and why we are concerned about the risks of serotonin syndrome. But Fergal, I guess a question I was going to ask you was, I guess the fascinating effects of MDMA in the sense that it's an atypical amphetamine type substance, but it has a whole range of mm. effects and interactions in the body. It, it's, it's a stimulant, but it's, it's far more than a, than a st stimulant, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's well described as an atypical stimulant because it is a stimulant because, you know, all stimulants uh, basically either increase noradrenaline or increase uh, synaptic dopamine. So, you know, it is a set of nerd, uh, it is a net and dat inhibitor. But it is also a cert inhibitor, right? So effectively, it inhibits cert more than it inhibits net and dat. So therefore, it's predominant monoamine that it really has an effect on is serotonin. So it does increase synaptic serotonin uh, preferentially. It also releases uh, monoamines from presynaptic neurons. It also inhibits tryptophan hydroxylase. It also inhibits monoamine oxidase. So again, it inhibits the degradation of these uh, monoamines. And also, it is a serotonin-2 receptor agonist. In particular, that means that it can have psychiatric effects. So overall, to summarize all of that, we see that it is a stimulant, but it is also an empathogen because it increases the amount of serotonin synaptically. So it's, it's quite literally the love drug. It makes people feel very close to others. And it's also a hallucinogen because it does activate serotonin, certain types of serotonin 2A receptors. So it's got three broad actions as, which occur as a result of a multiplicity of mechanisms of action. And when we're talking about MDMA, what are the typical doses that people take? And how, which routes or how is this um, drug taken commonly? Right. So it's commonly ingested, it's commonly orally, you normally get a pill. Now the dose of the pill, <laughs> I used to say that it's about 100 milligrams. I'm not sure that's true anymore. I mean, I think that the, the, the recent, um, the recent uh, experience for pill testing in Australia has, has demonstrated actually there is a significant variability in dosing. But, you know, 100 milligrams is the figure that sticks into my head. And actually, when you consider, if you were going to think of this as a, as a, as a, as a drug, you'd have to consider the therapeutic window, wouldn't it? Or the therapeutic index. So what's the, the difference between the, the dose that you want and the dose at which you get side effects? So you tend to get side effects about 120 milligrams. So it's got actually quite a narrow therapeutic window. And, um, MDMA or ecstasy, it's, it's quite rapidly absorbed, isn't it, Fergal? And, and a lot of people see effects within, within 30 to 45 minutes of ingestion. Mm. Could you talk mm. to us a bit about like the time period for peak effect and, and the duration of, of MDMA yeah. post ingestion? So it's about 
30 to 45 minutes to actually start getting any effect at all. And that's a really important point to make. You need to wait up to at least three quarters of an hour, and I would actually say an hour, before you can make any decision as to whether or not the pill that you think is ecstasy that you've taken has actually worked. The peak effect is about an hour to an hour and a half, and then the duration of effect can be up to five hours. So I basically think half an hour, one hour, five hours, as, as, as a kind of easy way of thinking about the, the clinical effect profile, which is a reflection of its absorption and then distribution and then excretion. And, and you were talking a bit earlier about um, half-lives as well. Um, could you mm-hmm. tell us for roughly that 100 to 125 milligram dose range of MDMA, what would be the, the, the yeah. half-life? And can you talk to us a bit about the, the metabolism of MDMA? All right. So the half-life of any drug is the time required for the serum plasma or the plasma concentration to actually reduce by 50% by half. And in the case of um, MDMA, ecstasy, it's about eight to nine hours. So then the question then becomes, well, if the duration of action is maximum by five hours, how come you have a half-life that's longer? And the, and the answer is actually, you have to understand that when you absorb a drug, concentration goes up, then it plateaus, and then it starts to go down again. But you tend not to get a clinical effect at, at zero, you tend to get it, there tends to be a threshold for clinical effects. So the duration of action actually depends on the time when the rising concentration crosses the threshold and the descending concentration then recrosses that threshold for effect. So it's perfectly reasonable to have a half-life of a drug that's longer than actually the duration of effect. Mm-hmm. In terms of its kinetics, so remember kinetics uh, means what the body does to the drug as opposed to dynamics, which is what the drug does to the body. So we've already discussed the dynamics. We've discussed the mechanism of action of ecstasy. So the kinetics, broadly speaking, it's very well absorbed. It's, it's metabolized by the liver. Its main metabolic product is MDA, so methylene deoxyamphetamine rather than methylene deoxymethamphetamine, which is what ecstasy is. And it's metabolized by the SIP system, the CYP450 system, but it's also metabolized by catechol-O-methyltransferase, uh, which is an enzyme particularly well known to be involved in the degradation of dopamine. And in fact, we know that inhibitors of COMT are actually uh, therapeutic interventions for Parkinson's disease. Mm-hmm. As is quite common with a large range of drugs, it's metabolized by the liver and then the byproducts are excreted by the kidneys. So uh, the, if we go back to liver metabolism, there are phase one reactions and phase two reactions. Phase one reaction transforms a drug, phase two reactions solubilize a drug. So if we look at phase one reactions for ecstasy, it's metabolized by CYP, it's transformed into MDA, and then it is connected by a phase two reaction to glucuronides and sulfates, which actually increase the solubility. Mm-hmm. And when you think about it, if we're talking about kinetics, a drug that needs to be absorbed into the body has to be fat-soluble. A drug that is then going to be excreted into either into bile or into urine, both of which are basically water, uh, water-soluble uh, uh, media, that has to transform from fat soluble into water solubilities. And so that's effectively what uh, what happens in the liver. And then, of course, once it's water solubilized, it's readily excreted. And 50% of MDMA is excreted uh, unchanged in urine. And so that really then makes it very easy, easily detectable 
in a urine drug screen. That's a great summary of, of the pharmacokinetics of, of MDMA. And I guess to kind of segue to another aspect of, of MDMA, now we're all really familiar with the stimulant effects of MDMA, the cardiovascular effects in particular, you know, tachycardia, hypertension, the, the CNS stimulant effects as well, the, the potential for agitation and seizures. I guess the thing that's now getting a bit more research and that is getting a bit more clinical um, acceptance as well as as being the the the, the focus of research is um, the use of ecstasy um, or MDMA as an as an empathogen and and the psychedelic effects. Could you expand a bit on the um, the use of MDMA as as an empathogen and its and its role in in conditions such as treatment-resistant PTSD? Yeah, this is a really important issue. The whole reason why ecstasy has been classified as an illicit substance is fundamentally because when that classification was done, there was no potential medical use for ecstasy. Right? So there was absolutely no medical use for ecstasy, therefore any use was considered illicit. Now, we know that that's not true. And even as we speak now, there are multiple research centers conducting trials on the role of ecstasy, and in particular, this concept of microdosing of ecstasy, ecstasy. They're conducting trials on the role of ecstasy in the management of refractory mental health conditions. It is really arrogant on our part to think that we as a society know how to treat with current medications, the entire range of mental health disorders. And so, you know, I think that the classification of ecstasy as an illicit substance with no medical use has basically hampered medical research for years. All right. So there is evidence emerging that it is a very useful adjunct to certainly in the treatment of treatment resistance, depression, treatment resistant PTSD. And the key thing about ecstasy's medicinal use lies in the fact that it is an empathogen. And the key reason why it is an empathogen is, as I've already said, it inhibits reuptake of serotonin. It is a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, just like all of the SSRIs. That and various other actions then cause a downstream effect where basically it elevates the amount of oxytocin in our brain. Now, what does oxytocin do? Oxytocin is a hormone in the brain that makes us feel socially connected, makes us feel safe, makes us feel loving, makes us feel empathy, right? It is also, if you think about it, it is, it, it is the hormone that mediates the love that occurs between a mother and their newborn child, because actually oxytocin is secreted as during vaginal delivery. There's a reflex uh, that, that, that triggers oxytocin release during vaginal delivery. And that's a survival thing, isn't it? Imagine if you had, a, we as a species had mums that were delivering babies and there, weren't, there wasn't any empathic emotional connection. We, you know, babies wouldn't survive. So oxytocin mediates that effect. So what, you know, how do you, how do you demonstrate uh, the effect of oxytocin? You talk about the love that, uh, that occurs between a mother and a child. And imagine if we had all of that love when we were trying to treat people with refractory depression or refractory PTSD. That's how we have this utility for ecstasy. 
Now, I have to emphasize that love is not actually sexual desire because actually oxytocin inhibits sexual desire and it also inhibits uh, the ability to orgasm. So really, you know, quite crudely, you end up wanting to hug people rather than uh, have intercourse with them. That's a, that's a great summary, Fergal. <laughs> and I think it, it also uh, shows how it's almost seemingly illogical in some instances how some drugs that we use, <clears throat> i.e. alcohol and tobacco, are acceptable and other mm. drugs which actually have clinical relevance and may be used to alleviate human suffering are illegal in, in certain situations. So uh, it, 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 it does, I guess, show some of the, I guess, the arrogance that there is and also the, mm. the, the lack of uniformity in, in our approach to classifying um, drugs. Yeah. Regarding the side effects of, of MDMA, um, the common side effects, um, slight side effects uh, that we know of are, are, are nystagmus, trismus, or clenching of the jaw, sometimes feeling hot um, and confused uh, as well. But there are some serious side effects that, that do occur from, from MDMA. And I'll, I'll just list a few, but I was going to talk to you, Fergal, about them in a bit more detail. But the, the common ones that we get really worried about are uh, are some psychiatric presentations, in particular uh, anxiety, paranoia, hyponatremia mm. or low sodium, oh, yes. yeah. hyperthermia or high temperature, mm. the serotonin syndrome, which we'll expand on as well, and also um, some organ-specific effects of, of, of uh, MDMA, in particular uh, the risk of liver damage. But going through these one by one, Fergal, the psychiatric side effects of, of ecstasy, could, could you expand on, on some of the, um, the, the, the risks that... that can occur with um, with MDMA and, and the psychiatric comorbidity? Yeah, so I think there's, there's two key things I'd like to highlight. Firstly, it is a hallucinogen, so you can really get you know, a frank psychotic illness as a result of it. You can hallucinate. And that's because it is a serotonin 2A receptor agonist. And actually, a lot of the antipsychotic actions of the atypical antipsychotics that we have are actually serotonin 2A antagonists. So there we have an example of agonism and antagonism uh, working uh, to, to, to A, firstly, to uh, create psychosis and then to treat psychosis. The second one that I really want to bring into the forefront is this risk of hyponatremia. Now, hyponatremia, as a result of uh, ecstasy intoxication, is particularly a problem for young women. For some reason... Women tend to be more sensitive to the, to the effect of ecstasy causing hyponatremia. Why is that a risk? Well, it's a risk because you can die from one pill. There have been in various countries, various newspaper reports, sadly, of deaths due to one pill ingestion of ecstasy. And more often than not, they have occurred as a result of acute hyponatremia. So what is hyponatremia and why does it happen in ecstasy toxicity? Well, it happens as a result of the syndrome of inappropriate ADH which basically means we, re we, we retain water and we dilute our salt. And then when we dilute our salt and we retain water, what happens to the brain is that it basically uh, swells up. And so some of that dilute fluid from the plasma then enters into the brain tissue, causing brain swelling. And as you know, swelling of the brain inside a, a tight space of the skull is not good for anyone. And ultimately, it can cause seizures. It can cause herniation and loss of consciousness, coma and, and death. And this has actually happened. 
So it's really, and, and actually, it's not just a problem with ecstasy. This can also happen with amphetamine or methamphetamine use disorder. But it's more common with, um, it's more common with ecstasy. Now, the key thing to understand about this is that people think that when you're taking stimulants or ecstasy, you have to drink a lot of water. Actually, drinking too much water is, is an issue with, uh, with this. So I often say, if you're dancing, no more than a pint an hour, which is about half a liter. And if you're not dancing, no more than half a pint, which is about a quarter of a liter an hour. The other side effect that you often hear about is, is hypothermia. And that can be due to the drug itself or due to MDMA itself. But it can also be secondary to like a serotonin syndrome, as we talked about a bit earlier. Um, what, what's your um, view on, on the hypothermic risk of, of MDMA, Fergal? Well, I mean, you know, think about the context. So you're, you're in a hot, you're, you take ecstasy at a rave, you're in a hot, sweaty nightclub, it's full of people who are all ex- irradiating heat. You take uh, ecstasy, and uh, you, you, you end up with a, a high temperature reaction. You don't actually sweat enough. You, you, you know, you're, you're surrounded by hot people. You become dehydrated. It's, 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 it's also a risk factor then for melting of the muscles, which is rhabdomyolysis, as you've already alluded to. And again, that too can cause problems. So there are problems both with overhydration and dehydration when you're using ecstasy. And it's really important to get that absolute balance right. And I guess lastly, we, we've already kind of touched on, on the serotonin syndrome earlier in, in the episode where we've already uh, explained that uh, MDMA acts um, uh, to inhibit serotonin reuptake inhibition, causing serotonin dumping, leading to excess um, serotonin in, in those synaptic clefts, and that can cause um, uh, increased delirium, hypertension, tachycardia. Uh, it can cause hyperthermia, and it can in significant cases be be fatal so serotonin syndrome is is something to be to be aware of but i guess lastly and to and to finish off off this episode fergal i think we should also talk about the organ effects of of mdma and in particular um the the cardiac effects as well as the effects of uh, mdma on on the brain and liver um what are the main takeaways our listeners and viewers should be aware of with regards to MDMA and some of its end organ effects? So again, it's really important to understand that it's, ecstasy is not a safe drug. You know, it's, 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 it's as potentially as dangerous as, as the stimulants. And it's really important to understand that ecstasy and the stimulants don't just have effects on the brain. They don't just get you high. They also can actually impair your physical health. So in the heart, we know that it causes reuptake inhibition of the uh, monoamine surrounding the heart. So basically, it's overstimulating the heart. And it can then cause um, vasospasm, so it can shut down the artery supplying the heart. It can cause problems with uh, blood supply to the heart. And it can cause... Um, you know, and angina or cause even heart attacks. So when you when you, when I hear of stories in the news of young Hollywood starlets who at four o'clock in the morning are being rushed off to a hospital in Los Angeles with a heart attack, well, young fit adults tend not to get heart attacks. So I often feel that the reason why that this is happening is because they've taken a stimulant, either either amphetamine or methamphetamine or even ecstasy, and has caused them to undergo a vasospastic attack. There are other mechanisms by which ecstasy can damage the heart. And so it basically, you know, the, the effects that you've already described, the hyperthermia, the hyper, you know, high temperature, 
and also the serotonin. This can also cause downstream heart damage, including ultimately cardiac arrest and death. Mm-hmm. So it's not a it's it's, it's got a wide uh, pathophysiology in the heart. Talk us through Philippe, and if you would, the brain. So uh, MDMA and, um, and its effects on the brain uh, are, are multiple. Um, we've talked about surges in blood pressure associated with MDMA usage, and that can certainly um, increase the risk of rupture of pre-existing aneurysms or uh, arteriovenous malformations, which are collections of abnormal blood vessels. It can increase the risk of intracranial hemorrhage or, or bleeding in the brain as well. And also, as with any hallucinogen, um, it can also increase the risk of developing a, a delirium, which in untreated cases or severe cases can be can be fatal, especially in, in those uh, who are already vulnerable due to other health conditions as well. So it can cause some pretty significant cognitive and brain effects as well. And I guess, Fergal, um, to, to wrap up some of these um, end organ things, uh, MDMA's effects on the liver are, are particularly well known. Could you talk us mm. through um, some of the, the, the liver effects of MDMA? So you can get a direct hepatotoxicity, so it can cause direct liver damage, like, like practically any drug can theoretically cause liver damage. But also you have to accept the fact or appreciate the fact that liver damage can, exert, can occur also as a result of the hyperthermia and the high, the high uh, temper- body temperatures that, uh, that can occur as a result of serotonin syndrome, which is again a downstream effect of, of ecstasy toxicity. So it's been a pretty uh, information-packed episode of Cracking Addiction uh, today. We've talked about MDMA. We've talked about its pharmacokinetics, um, uh, its pharmacodynamics, both the recreational use of MDMA as well as some of the therapeutic um, options and interventions that are being explored currently. And we've also talked about um, the interactions of MDMA, um, both with different um, chemicals within the body, but also its effects on end organs. So it's been, again, another action-packed episode of Cracking Addiction. Thanks for your attention and bye for now.